At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. I read an article this spring by David French. I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, but I find him to be, he's an author, um, journalist, attorney, and, and he always helps me make a lot of sense to the world and faith. I mean, he's a person of faith. He's a Christian. And I always appreciate, he, he's very thoughtful. And the title of this article that I read months ago that I remembered this week was called Parenting Against the Spirit of Fear. And in the article, he asked the question, as kids face a mental health crisis, it's time to ask, are we training our kids to be like ourselves? Ooh, that's a provocative question. Are we training our kids to be like ourselves? And he shares uh, about his home growing up, which he describes as peaceful, intact, loving. And he recognized how he always looked to his parents for cues, emotional cues. How am I supposed to re respond to a situation? I look to my parents for that. I think a lot of our kids do. And he also goes on to explain some sobering realities, which will not shock any of us of what's present in our world. Deep anxiety, he writes about. Terrible depression. Crippling sadness that's experienced not just in kids, but also in adults and teenagers. And he references a book that documents how a spirit of safetyism, you ever heard that term, spirit of safetyism, which really is rooted in adult anxieties, how that deeply influences how we raise our children. He shares words of advice for parents. There's some encouragement in it, but he really challenges that perhaps one of the reasons, he writes, that, that why our kids are anxious and in pain is that they're reflecting and amplifying the anxiety and pain that they see in their parents every day. I mean, for how many of us did we have to work at home? Maybe some of us still do work at home. And sometimes kids see the stress of stressful jobs, and are they reflecting that because that's what they see? Fear is a very real part of our world. It's not, not brand new, though. It's very old. It shows up in the pages of Scripture as soon as sin shows up on the occasion, or on, on the on the. In the equation, you can see fear enter. And I don't have a significant research study to cite, but I do believe that there is a connection between fear and sin. Not always, but I do think that there is some connection there. Because when we have fear that things are not as we want them to be, when we have fear that things are beyond our control or the control of somebody else, sometimes that leads us to unhealthy and unrighteous behavior vis-a-vis -vis sin. But not all fear leads to sin, right? I mean, if you're terribly afraid of spiders, arachnophobia, you're probably not going to murder an arachnologist, somebody who loves spiders, right? Somebody who studies them, loves them, wants to spend time understanding them. Your fear of spiders is not going to make you kill a spider scientist. You may fear your kid's safety, and so you set up boundaries and say, don't play in the street, right? That, that's good and right. That's wise. We don't want them to get hit by a car. So that fear, I don't think, leads you to a place of sin. But some, 
Something, sometimes it does. There may be something in your child's life that you don't understand, that you can't control, that may lead you to respond to them poorly. It may affect how you parent them in an ungodly, sinful way. At the root of much of our sin is fear. At the root of much of our sin is fear, and it usually plays itself out in a number of ways depending on how you're wired and your personality. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's fear of really, truly being known. So you continue to just hide, whether it's in sin or whether it's in shame. Maybe it's fearful of scarcity. You have a scarcity mentality, and so you take more than you should. You steal. I don't know what what it is for, for you, but at the root of much of our sin is fear, and that Fear can lead us away from God's flourishing and into chaos and brokenness, which is exactly what we're going to see today in our text, which we continue through a series that we're calling Family, Why Bother? And we're paying close attention to the first families of our faith, the first families that we see in the book of Genesis. We've been working through them because we want to better understand who we are. We want to understand who God's made us to to be. We want to understand where and why things have gone off course so badly, as we've seen so far. As one person has put it, Jesus may be in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Sometimes there's generational sin, isn't there? We're discovering the family issues that that plagued our first parents are actually still prevalent in our lives today. But praise God, it's not all bad news. Praise God that there is hope that we have already sung about and that we will remind ourselves through this text. Christ offers us power and grace to see change, to see wholeness and flourishing. And so, today we, cons- we consider Abram. He is the father of our faith. He's the father of more than just our faith, but multiple religions of the world look to him. He's a very pivotal figure in history because he is one to whom God made promises some specific promises that come before the text that I just read. If you scroll back up or turn, turn a page back and look at Genesis 2, the very beginning, God makes promises to Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and if there are people who dishonor you, I'm going to curse them. One commentary notes that Abram is not only to be a recipient of blessing, but he's also a channel through which the blessing may flow to others. We see that in another promise God makes to him, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram. And so as we approach this text, and to be honest, all the rest of Scripture, we have to understand and recognize the sovereign plan of God amid the boneheaded and sinful actions of mankind. That's that's always present, God's sovereignty and sin. And I'll be totally honest, this is a hard text. I kind of groaned when I looked ahead and saw on the schedule, this is my text. There is no way to mince words about the fact that Abram trafficked his wife. I'd say that's pretty heavy, pretty awful. Would you agree? I mean, that's, a, that's what we see here. It's complicated because he's also held up later in Scripture as a model of faith. So like in Hebrews, Abram's faith in the hall of faith. 
And yet we see he trafficked his wife. This is hard. This is tension that I felt. And it's, to be honest, pretty par for the courses we've seen in stories so far, right? As we've looked at people so far in Genesis in this series, as you just read through the pages of your Bible, there are people who make sinful decisions and there are consequences. So look at Adam and Eve, right? They chose their own way. They sinned. They, they, sin introduced itself to the cosmos through them. And what was the consequence? They had no more intimacy with God. They had shame. They had to leave the place that God intended for them to live. Look at their next generation. We looked at that the next week. So we have Cain, their son, their eldest. Because of his anger and because of his shame, he murders his brother. And what's his consequence? He's banished, right? He's rejected. He's a wanderer. And then we, we jumped over some of these in the series, but if you keep looking in the pages of Scripture, we have a very corrupt mankind that the punishment, the consequence of their sin is a global flood where God kills all living creatures except for Noah's family. And Noah, who is called God's friend, makes some pretty terrible decisions, and that leads to dysfunction in his family for generations. So this has been the track record. And Moses' kids have kids and kids and kids and all that stuff. And here we are to Abram, the next character in our story. And so, here we are in Genesis 12. At the very beginning, God has called some guy named Abram to follow him. Abram didn't, trust, uh, didn't, didn't know God. It's not like his family worshipped God, but God chose him. And he began in faithfulness. He said, pick up your stuff, pick up your people, and go to this place that I'm going to give to your, your descendants. And so, we will see this vacillation in Abram's life as well as in the rest of the pages of Scripture and in my life and yours. This vacillation between fear and faith. That's what we see on repeat. But, since we're talking to Abram here, let's dial into him. And let's see how he failed to trust God's promises. Because... He did. But the good news, the silver lining, we'll come back to this, is God is faithful even when we are not. That's the overarching narrative of this story and scripture is God is faithful even if we're not. But let's just jump into to verse 10. It references a famine. Now, a little bit of context. Where is Abram? Who is Abram? Abram is in Canaan presently. He's in Canaan. Remember, he picked up his stuff and he went to where God told him to go. Abram is a nomadic shepherd. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it helps us to understand why is he coming from, why is he going to Egypt? And and what you have to to remember, and we forget this because our lives are not connected to an agrarian life and society, but in those days, you either lived near a city and you farmed on land that belonged to the king, you would give some of your crops to the king in exchange. Or, like Abram, you had flocks. In his case, it was sheep. And so you have flocks and camels. But, so he's got his flocks, and he lives away from the protection of a city, away from a king. During the winter months in this part of the world, winter months, it's cooler, it's rainier, there's grass, which is good for flocks. And so they would eat. But then in the dry months, they would have to relocate. Shepherds, nomads would have to relocate closer to a city, and they would have to barter. So I'll give you this many sheep, king, if you give me provision for my flock. And so that's how this worked. 
And it's interesting, if you pay attention to where cities are in, in the text of Scripture, this is a pretty much a constant rhythm in, in the Old Testament, God's people moving and, and going in different places. It's really interesting. But there was a particular stress brought on by famines. Because in the place of, when a famine came, you couldn't just go to a city, you had to go to a sustainable water source. And if you look at a map, look at the Nile. Lots of water, fertile valley, fertile area. And so it was good, I mention all this little geography lesson because it was good and right for Abram to take his family and his flocks down to Egypt. It wasn't a bad thing that he went down there. It was good that he went down there. But our first fear indicator, so we have a little indicator that's going off, he is fearful about a famine. But he, he talks about sojourning. So our text says sojourn, which is just a temporary stay. So he's not falling outside of God's will because he's going down there. He's intending to go back to the promised land, but he's got to provide for his family and his flocks. So he goes. But the problem that, that enters into verse 11 is that he devised this scheme on his way down there with fear as it, at its root. Because when he was about to enter Egypt, verse 11 tells us, he says to Sarah, you're, you're beautiful. And so not only is he afraid of famine, but now we'll see another fear indicator. He has a trust issue in God. He's actually fearing his life. But remember, he just started out in faith. He moved, not knowing where he was going. But now he's like, oh, I don't know about this. I got to control this. And sometimes, I think it's in the life of Abram and in our lives, forgetfulness and fear invite sin. Forgetfulness and fear begin to confuse us, and all of a sudden, we're inviting sin into our life. We start making poor choices, not trusting God. So he says to Sarah, you're beautiful. He affirms her beauty. And guys, husbands, let's do this regularly to our wives, right? Let's affirm their beauty, but don't you dare come up with a stupid scheme like he did where you're going to trade her away so that you can maintain some level of control. And that was his plan. So his, his scheme was filled with deceit. It was filled with disregard for her dignity, for her value. It was also um, control. I mean, he just was absolutely trying to manipulate the situation, as we'll see. Now, Let's start with deceit. It was a, a half-truth, this whole idea of her being a sister. Can we agree that a half-truth is a lie? Yeah, okay, good. We're on the same page. Genesis 20, verse 12 affirms Sarai is his half-sister. They share the same father, but they have different mothers. But she was truly his wife, and the text refers to her constantly as his wife, never as his sister, and so he's concocting this story to the Egyptians based on, number one, what he wants them to know. So he's only revealing a little bit. And then he's also soothing his own conscience by saying, oh, she's my sister. Secondly, disregard of her, her dignity. I mean, he clearly had some issues as it related to Sarah and her value. I can't even imagine if I went to Allie and said, hey, hon, so that it's advantageous to us, let's just pretend we're not married right? What, what does that show about how I value Allie in our marriage? It's terrible. He did not value her. It also is terribly sad that he would put her at risk. 
I mean, she would be vulnerable living in Pharaoh's household, not living with him anymore, but part of his household. And he would put her at risk. Why? Well, control. He wanted control. He felt the need to control the outcome. He was afraid of his life. In this culture, it was normative behavior for kings to have the most beautiful people. All the beautiful women, they would gather into their harem. That's just how it was. And sadly, we see that also with some of the kings over God's people, that they followed some of the same patterns of the foreign kings around them. And Abram recognizes, I'm coming to Egypt in need. I kind of have my hat in my hand. I need help during this famine, and this is just how it's going to play out. She's beautiful. They're going to kill me. And and so I got to change the situation. Pardon me if I'm Captain Obvious here, but if Abram is dead, how does God make good on his promise? Right? If Abram and Sarai are separated, Abram's killed, then how does God make good on the promise that he made not only for them to have a family and a place, but also to be a blessing to the whole world? Seems like if Abram's out of the equation, that can't happen. He forgot God's promise. He started in faith, and then he got overwhelmed. And he got a little control freak. And it led to his manipulation. It reminds me of the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the writing of Life Together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know, he lived earlier in the 1900s. He was a, a pastor in Germany. And all of these churches over Germany were folding because of the influence and the pressure of the, of the Nazis. And there were pastors who were making personal allegiance to Hitler instead of personal allegiance to Christ. And they were preaching and teaching and whatever the Third Reich wanted them to. And Bonhoeffer felt immense pressure but deep conviction to stay firm. And he created a network of underground seminaries and spiritual communities that would practice the way of Jesus and continue to prepare men to lead the church. Because Bonhoeffer knew that The church is God's plan. So though there was great pressure from Nazis, God's plan is not going to be snuffed out by a dictator. He was confident in the fact, because he read his scripture, that out of adversity, out of persecution, the church multiplies. And that is surely what happened. And here we are 90 years later. I mean, our staff just read through life together. And we're blessed by it. We're blessed by the the example of his life these 90 years later. Bonhoeffer and his brothers didn't succumb to fear. They had faith in what God was going to use them to do to actually spur on more churches and that Jesus wasn't all of a sudden just going to lose control of this thing because of a, a dictator. So how about you? When fearful situations come, when things that feel a bit out of your control What are you facing that tempts you to fear? A part of preparation and preaching is not only understanding the context and and the passage, but it's also understanding the people to whom you preach. And over the last few months, I've had dozens 
of personal conversations and meetings with us, with our family. And here's what I think comes out. People feeling entrapped by sin, mental health crises, uncertainty about your own health or maybe the well-being of someone you love, relational tension and conflict, for sure in the home, but not limited to the home, wrestling through doubt and confusion, whether it's with faith in God that you really are wrestling and you doubt God, maybe it's confusion with your own family and what's happened, maybe it's your own sexuality, maybe it's your place in the world, working through the effects of a dysfunctional family, coming to terms with trauma that happened to you at some point in your life, some of you feeling stress and getting a job, in finding and affording a house in this day and age, some of you so badly wanting to be married, wanting kids and trying but not being able to, grieving a loss, you've lost someone through death or divorce or you're lonely. I mean, these are merely a cross-section of what we in this room are feeling, let alone the crazy world outside. And I say it because sometimes it's easier for us to look there's some guy, you know, thousands of years ago who, who was motivated by fear without actually looking in the mirror and recognizing what we're walking through and really asking the question, what's the fear indicator for us? You know, when you're facing something, what is the little flag that goes off that says, hang on, you are close to moving from a place of faith and trust and confidence in God to a place of fear. And all of those things that I just referenced are great examples where the evil one, the hostile one, wants to mess with your mind. Are you aware when you're operating out of a place, maybe it's deceit, maybe it's the disregard for dignity, maybe it's control, I don't know what it is, but things that neither recognize God's faithfulness or what he's called us to is people leads us away from flourishing, that's for sure. Friends, I truly believe that what we most need is brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we give access and permission to our inner lives. I think we underestimate the church, not buildings, not the program, not the entity, but we, we underutilize the church, brothers and sisters, in a journey with us as part of our discipleship and our healing. For those of us who are born again, we have the Holy Spirit, right? We have the truth from God's word. We have promises that we can bank on, but we also have the gift of one another. And so we speak truth and grace to one another. James 5, 16 is true where he says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed because the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. Do you have people who can help you to see fear indicators in your life? As we continue in the text in verse 14, they get to Egypt and Sarai has a very different experience in Egypt than does Abram. They continue and indeed 
the Egyptians notice her beauty. She is taken into Pharaoh's harem. I'm disgusted even in the text by the inference of objectification. It just calls her the woman. And she is now, in some ways, captive in a foreign household. And Abram has invited adultery into their marriage. Right? He didn't value her. He wanted to save his own neck. And so he put her in a vulnerable situation so that he could make out pretty well. And what was the outcome? Well, verse 16, I read it earlier, it tells us about all these sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants and camels. But in a nutshell, it's wealth, right? He makes out incredibly wealthier than when he came. But one commentator said this bound him to an obligation from which he was not able to deliver himself. His scheme nearly lost him his wife, and without it, the blessing, the promised blessing, would be doomed. And so we'll get into it a little bit more, but we see God's hand of grace and salvation where he extends mercy. He extends mercy to this situation because the Lord afflicts Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is ignorantly sinning. I mean, he shouldn't have a harem, but, but he, he is at some level, this is a sin of ignorance on his part because he's duped by Abram. So messed up was this that even Pharaoh was affected by it. Sarah was affected by it. And Pharaoh freaks out. He confronts Abram. He says, what were you doing? Why didn't you tell me? Why would you have brought this calamity on Egypt? Now, do you remember? I, I read it just a few minutes ago. In verse 3, there's this promise that God's blessing those who bless Abram and those who dishonor Abram, he's... Anybody awake? He's cursing. Right. He's cursing. him. And so this is a fulfillment of that. Pharaoh's getting cursed because he dishonored Abram and his wife. That's the sad truth here is when you pay attention to it, Abram's sin isn't just affecting himself, it's not just affecting Sarai, it's also affecting large numbers of people. And it's the same with us. That's the consequences of our sin. We oftentimes wrongly convince ourselves that sin only affects us, and we're not even really attuned to how badly it affects us. But sin, as we see through the pages of Scripture, told through the stories of our first families and our own families, our lives, has lasting effects. Numbers 14 even references that, that God sometimes revisits sins of the fathers for multiple generations. My wife's grandfather grew up in a home that was not a happy home. It was filled with dysfunction. It was not good. And at some point in his life, he came to a church that taught biblical truth. And as he was steeped in biblical truth, he and his wife made a decision to break the chain. He did not want to pass on the experiences, the dysfunction, the hurt, the brokenness to his family. And so they began changing how they lived how they raised their children, and so on. And what was passed then on to their children and their future children, of which I married into, is a love for Jesus and building his kingdom. A beautiful story 
of break the chain and hope that can come. And on Thursday this week, we'll travel to the funeral of Allie's grandma, Dottie. She was a godly woman, lived in her, up to her 90s. And we'll get to celebrate her. And we'll celebrate the fact that from this couple, they made such a change in their life to break that, that cycle of sin that from them, I was just marveling at this, those of us who will gather for the funeral, from them will come, have come five pastors six missionaries, and five who serve vocationally, full-time in ministry, which is really just their faithfulness and God's faithfulness to them, that he can bring about life change even in the midst of brokenness, even when our sin affects other people. The power of the cross speaks a better word, a truer word, a more powerful word of life change, healing, and redemption. Our God always shows mercy to sinners. The words of the Lord himself in Exodus 34, he describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we see as we continue in the text in verse 20, Sarai is delivered. God shows mercy despite Abram's sin, and he delivers Sarai, and Abram is rebuked by being kicked out. By royal order, Pharaoh says, get out. You brought calamity on me, and you're out. But though it was a rebuke from Pharaoh, it really is God's faithfulness to Abram because he returns to the promised land with a whole lot more materially, materially than he had before. But I want to I just pause because he, here is um, an interesting observation that I noticed in the text. So far in this series, we've looked at people and their, consequent, their sin and consequences, right? So Adam and Eve, sin, separation. Cain, sin, rejection. The people of the earth who lose their lives. Noah, dysfunction. All of these cause and effect, right? All these consequences of sin. Until we get to Abram, he trafficked his wife, he lied to Pharaoh, he made a giant mess. Where's the consequence? Can anybody see it in here? Where's the consequence? Why does he seemingly get a pass? when his forefathers haven't? That's an interesting and somewhat troubling question that I had to face. He made some terrible decisions. And here's what I found in some of my study. In spite, I heard the word, in spite of the trouble Abram caused for himself, God was faithful to his word and did not let the foolishness of this man throw his plan into jeopardy. God was faithful to his promises. He was faithful to Abram, his covenant person, the one through whom the covenant would, would flow out to the whole world. And so the theme from Genesis 12 and continuing into the lives and stories of his family for generations is God's mercy and his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. If God said he was going to do something, he's going to fulfill it. You better believe. You can bank on it. He's going to do it. And so what he was doing in the life of Abram, though he made some terrible, abhorrent decisions, is God was upholding his own faithfulness, his own covenant, despite Abram's sin. 
in the article by David French that I referenced at the very beginning. He closes it by answering a question that he's often asked when he's giving lectures around the country. What are you reading to help you navigate the complexities of the present world? And his answer is, the Bible. As he's reread scripture, he writes this, it's through the lens, it's been through the lens, that every single syllable in the New Testament was written during a time far worse disease, oppression, and danger. Christian believers had no political power, and they worried about being killed, not canceled. But despite the environment, the words of Scripture are full of expressions of faith, hope, and love, and they defy fear quite explicitly. And you know what I love about that? It's true. We must remind ourselves of the truth of Scripture, the promises of God, the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He was enduringly faithful to Abram, despite his boneheadedness, against the backdrop of continued rebellion of Abram's family for generations, with moments of faithfulness, God was faithful to them because he covenanted with his people. He was going to make good on his word. And the promises of God, if you are in Jesus, have been extended to you we are the covenant people of God because he has introduced that new covenant through Jesus' work on the cross. And we have to believe that if God has covenanted with us, that it's on him to keep it. And so let me read some beautiful verses of scripture over us. Ephesians 2 reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which means in, unable, dead, can't respond. But God, two of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It's a good gift. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, so he's got a mind for the future, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And it truly is not something that we earn, that we work for. He gives us faith, and we're given grace. And friends, the pages of your Bible are full of the faithfulness of God. We have to recognize, just like in the life of Abram, even despite our brokenness and our sin, God proves himself faithful and he will complete what he started, which in case you've forgotten is for us to become more like Jesus, for us to grow up in Jesus, in maturity. Listen, I don't know your story. I don't know what you're facing today in your own heart and in your mind. Maybe like Abram, you are embroiled in a mess of deception, of control, Maybe your story includes the effects of brokenness in your family or shame that you feel from your sin or, or the sin of another against you. You may be wrestling with fear or doubt. Maybe you've convinced yourself, like I have along the way, that I just know better about how the world works than God. And so I begin to wrestle and take some control and make decisions like Abram did. 
Friends, I don't wish to lay on you another burden. This is a heavy text. Trust me, I've lived with it this week. It's a heavy text already. And so what I want to invite us into is not another burden or easy steps toward recovery so that you can live your best life now. No, it's, it's actually difficult. It's a long journey, but 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control, which is a promise, which means he's going to make good on it. And so the antidote for our fear is not, I just need to muster up all this faith to believe. I don't want to invite you into something more that you have to do. I want to invite you into rest. To embrace and rest in God's faithfulness. Some more beautiful words from Ephesians 3. Say that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with great, with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted, grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is, get this in your mind every day, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And friends, I know this to be true because I have to practice it every day. I have to remind myself of this every single day. It is not a chore. I choose to see it this way sometimes. It's not a chore for me to have to sit down and read the Bible in the morning in my quiet time with the Lord. It's how I try to drill it into my head. It's the same with coming to church. It's not about just showing up here. It's do we start our week off by reminding ourselves of what is true about us and about God and we rest and embrace his faithfulness to us. There are a lot of days I feel like Abram. Lots of days. But you know what? I look back. I can look in the rearview mirror. I can turn around and I can look and I can see how far I've come by his grace. I can see his hand in my life. And over breakfast a couple of days ago with a couple of friends, one of my friends shared a definition of faith that he once heard, and it so resonates with this passage. I leave this with you. Faith is trust in God's faithfulness. If you're a write-down person, write that down. Faith is trust in God's faithfulness. Sometimes we feel like we have to work ourselves up with faith, like I'm supposed to have more faith, to believe better, to do better, to sin less, to feel like we measure up. Take a breath. Pay attention. What's the story? What's the narrative that God is playing out in all of Scripture? It's that He's faithful to His promises. To rest in His promises, to behold the beauty of Jesus' work for you. This is a quote I found this week God graciously overrules even the mistakes of those He has called to their long-term benefit. And I close with a reminder from Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Yeah. Even the hard stuff. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? That's the goal for us to become more like Jesus. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom called, he also justified. That we get a label that says good and right on us, even though we deserve wrong, guilty. He gives us a new label. He justifies us, and those whom he justified, he also glorifies. And oh, what joy there will be when when we finally see him face to face, which he has his eye on, which he's promised that he will get us there. Not our work, not our striving, but he will do it in us. And so friends, let's rest in God's faithfulness to accomplish his promises. Jesus, this is only possible because you've done it on the cross. And so for my brothers and sisters here, I pray that they would be reminded anew today through our song, through our prayer time, through our time here in the Word and the story, an ancient text, an ancient story of Abraham, that you're still up to your same good work, inviting people to yourself, rewriting their story by your good hand. So help us as we process. Help us this week as we face whatever we face. We trust you because we have your spirit. We have your truth. We have reminders of your faithfulness. We have one another. So help us. You know our need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.